After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Rago. I'm back with Mind Rolling. And I'm with a very special person who, and we're just talking about getting to know each other and the delight in that. Anne Tashi Slater. Welcome. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Raghu. It's such a pleasure to be here. And thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's so good. I'm in LA or near LA, and Anne is in Tokyo. It's another day there. It's just amazing how it all works. I just want to mention something before we, we get going uh, with uh, Anne and her story, which is fascinating. Uh, we have a new uh, partner who's helping support the Be Here Now network. Then that's Eaton Hemp, and they actually make extraordinary CBD products. And th- it's something uh, I love because it's really great for inflammation. And that's something most of us have an issue with. Uh, so it's organic, it's wonderful, they're great people, and I'm not going to go any further than that, but check them out, uh, Eaton Hemp, and you go to the show notes and there'll be links and a wonderful little uh, offer if you want to buy something for the next little bit, uh, you'll, you'll be able to get it. So just go through uh, the show notes on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. That's, that's the commercial, and. And uh, and you have had uh, an extraordinary life, and I and one of the things, and we don't know each other, so I have uh, had a book. I mean, most of us from back in the day that were doing psychedelics and hanging out with Ramdas, like I have done for a long, long time until he just passed. Um, and as you you mentioned in this uh, little. Uh, it seems like the beginning of a memoir. Are you working on a memoir? I actually just finished one. Yes. Oh, really? It's, it's very much related to the piece that you're talking about in Tricycle. And it's going to get published soon? Soon, yes. Yes, oh. it's just, uh, yeah, settling oh, on that that's so now. great. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, of course, you mentioned the interest in the... the, the uh, we're talking, folks, about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, an extraordinary um, revealed manual for understanding the process of going through that we all are going to go through through death and into as it is completely um, part of the fabric of life of people from the east which is karma and reincarnation and this just describes that whole process. This book is so fantastic, but it's not easy to grok, shall we say? And uh, and of course, uh, Ram Dass or Richard Alpert and Tim Leary and Ralph Metzner, they did the the psychedelic experience uh, in '64 out of their all of the trips that they were doing. And and who what Ram Dass told me uh, it was recommended to them by Aldous Huxley. He told them after they described a little bit of the trip. Oh well, you got to get the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So uh, now here's the the. So I've had one, Annie. That and uh, that. Uh, it's it's the Evans Wentz one, and I, we're, you're going to tell that whole story. But uh, the, it's introduced by John Woodruff. Do you know that version of it? The yes, English I think mystic. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's some, I want to talk about a couple of things he mentions, which are, are really pretty far out, that were written in 1925. So, uh, but, and, and I think you, you got to just start with who you are and how you came to even find the Tibetan Book of the Dead and how your family goes back to a friendship, basically, with uh, the Lama, Kazidawa Samdab, who actually was the one who translated from the Tibetan. And, uh, and of course, uh, Evans Wentz, who is... Uh, we all knew about Evans Wentz way back in the day, you know, who is the, is the basic author of the book with... Uh, with the Lama. So tell us, tell us your story. It's so great. Thank you, Raghu. It's basically, I, so now I, I'm a, a writer and I'm a professor and I'm based in Tokyo where I've lived for many years. And I grew up in New Jersey and in the Bay Area, in, in Marin. And I grew up, my mother is Tibetan from Darjeeling and my father is American or was American from New Jersey. And I grew up very uh, Americanized. Uh, and I had been to Darjeeling once when I was three years old. Uh, I was born in Spain and my father was stationed at a naval base there. And I lived there for two years. And then my parents left me and my sister in Darjeeling with my grandparents while they got settled to work for the Peace Corps in Nepal. They were in the second group uh, of uh, volunteers in Nepal. Mm. in the in 1960s and then we left and we came to New Jersey after that as so I was Darjeeling Kathmandu and then to New Jersey and That's then uh, <laughs> yeah so yeah Spain Darjeeling Kathmandu New Jersey and then mm. California and so basically from the age of three until the age uh, until after I graduated from college I didn't go to Darjeeling and not only did I not go to Darjeeling, but I didn't think about it very much. I didn't know very much about it. And my mother really tried hard for us to to be American mm -hmm. and to, to she she really wanted us to fit in. And so we weren't raised Buddhist. Instead of celebrating uh, Buddhist holidays or Losar New Year, for example, the Tibetan mm -hmm. New Year, yeah. we celebrated Christmas. We celebrated Easter, <laughs> and. She also, interestingly, was really happy to leave behind the the old country, as it were. And she uh, was very bored as a child with prayers in the altar room and this kind of thing. And she was um, she went to the United States to become a doctor. And she went to Columbia, and so she was really happy to throw herself into the world of Western, modern Western mm. medicine and leave behind uh, the religious or more spiritual aspects of what she'd grown up with. So. I tried really hard to hide that I was part Tibetan or half Tibetan, as, as we said, my siblings and I, because I really, of course, wanted to fit in too, as children do. And I would, people would often try to guess my ethnicity and they would say, oh, are you Irish? Are you <laughs> Hawaiian? <laughs> Are you? <laughs> uh, and then if I said I was born in Spain, they say, oh, that's it, Spanish. And I'd say, um, right, that's right, Spanish. Because I really uh, didn't, there were no, there were almost no Asians or Asian Americans when I was growing up in, in American suburbia. There just weren't. It's very different from how it is now. And so I thought, and then people thought I was Chinese. And again, I didn't, change or correct that because I thought, well, at least that was known. Whereas remember in the, in the 1960s, the, the Dalai Lama had really just come out of Tibet. Yeah. And so he wasn't at all on the radar of, of the world the way he is now. So I, I worked really hard to hide it. And the only problem of course, is that I never could fit in, in terms of how I looked. And so the, the camouflage was only partial and, and I still looked really different. And so in any event, I, I went on like this and um, wishing that I had blonde hair and blue eyes and, and could fit in more with the, <laughs> okay. the you know, group around me. Yeah, and you were then, watching Bewitched, too. I, I, I was, remember reading I was. Bewitched and, and listening to Santana. <laughs> uh -huh. and that's, uh, that's Right. So you remember those those days on the green, the concerts in the Oakland Coliseum? <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, I was out there, yeah. too, at that time. Um, yeah. Just as a funny aside... Um, mm -hmm. 
I have a, a friend, uh, Krishna Das. I'm not sure if you know who he is. He's a does a chant around around the world. He's yeah. part of Ram Das and and I and Krishna Das and others that you may know. Uh, we were together in India with Neem Karoli Baba back in the day, and as so we were introduced to Hanuman there, and then he tells a funny story. Look, these people grew up with Hanuman. And what did we grow up with? Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Bewitched Mickey Mouse. Uh-huh. You know, that's what we grew that's up right. with. You know? That's Sorry, right. I dream much. of Jeannie. You know, yeah. <laughs> that was that, really? that whole era. You, you yeah. wonder, well, sorry. No, yeah. I remember. I remember that very well. And so that whole era was like that. And then I went to college and I majored in um, uh, French and Latin American literature and comparative literature. And I, uh, my dream was to be a writer in Paris and and that's what I was going to do. And I'm a great Francophile and I studied French for many years and I took a gap year in Paris after high school to, to work as an au pair. And so I graduated from college and it was funny. I just, something happened where I, I didn't, I felt, I, I felt really kind of lost. You know, I, I, I lost my sense of, of forward direction that I really had had very strongly and that had propelled me through, through high school and through college and, and all my different things that I was, that I wanted to do. And I think part of it was that in a sense, there were no more hoops to jump through. You know, when I was in college, I could like write this paper, or I could try to win that prize, or I could, you know, um, do this project, or I was very, very, uh, I loved all the academic work mm. in college. And then that was gone. And there I was with my life ahead of me and my future. And I, I wasn't planning to go to graduate school or, or anything like that. And I thought, I'll, I'll just, just say, go be a writer. And I really, I felt like something was missing and so I did an about face in the other direction and went east to India. And so I, and I, I, I guess I'm still on my way to Paris. I know. Uh, <laughs> One way so away. I, yeah. And something drew me to Darjeeling. And my grandfather had, my Tibetan grandfather had recently died. My grandmother was alone. And I decided to go there and spend some time with her. And that's what started this journey for me of this, mm. this excavation of my family history and end of myself. And then eventually led me to the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Mm. And you asked about uh, so about our family connection to yeah. the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah. And Your great-grandfather, so my, I think. Yeah. Right. It was my great-grandfather. And he was a very, uh, he worked very closely with the 13th Dalai Lama. And he was a, a diplomat and police officer in Darjeeling. So Evans Wentz came to Darjeeling and my great-grandfather gave him a letter of introduction to uh, Lama mm. Kazi Thamdup in um, Sikkim, in Gangtok. He was in Gangtok. Mm. And so Evans Wentz went one rainy morning with this letter in his pocket to Gangtok. And, and that's how they met and started working together on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And that is the edition that came out in 1927 that was published by Oxford. And interestingly, because I doubt anyone thought, well, this 8th century text by Guru Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, is going to be a huge bestseller <laughs> for, forever. <laughs> you know, millions of copies have been sold and still today it's it's incredibly and there of course have been other versions in addition to the original one. But that is that's how it came to the West in English. Mm. Now did your great grandfather he was living in Darjeeling and uh had he come there from Tibet? How did that all I'm just wondering. Our family had been in Darjeeling for a number, you know, for some generations. Oh, really? So, uh, yeah. So far, further back, our our family came from Tibet, but they had been there, and and he was born in that area uh, in the 1800s. Hmm. So he, but he he uh, he he knew a lot of different people, and so he provided this this letter of introduction. And so it was funny for me because as I became a writer, and I started working on a novel. 
that was related to, it was based on my grandfather's funeral. Oh. And that's, that's how I started researching the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And one thing that really struck me is that, of course, I was not, I was not reading it in the original Tibetan. Um, and I was reading the, this Oxford edition that had been made possible partly uh, by my great grandfather. And so I felt this was coming full circle. And mm -hmm. here I was, you know, many, many years later using it to, to write about some uh, this to write this novel and so the novel ended up being i i realized that i could structure it according to the tibetan book of the dead and that's how <laughs> that's how i got started with researching or studying the tibetan book of the dead did that novel come out that novel did not come out uh it was uh it is as yet unpublished um i wrote it and i uh it's basically about bardo about you know the the going through the bardo from death to rebirth the patriarch of the family is going from death to rebirth and then uh the surviving family members are going through their own death and rebirth cycles uh, as their own bardo because bardo of course is death to rebirth it's also birth to death uh, it's any time when our our ordinary reality is suspended, and so that that was one of the things that that was and remains very intriguing to me about the Book of the Dead, which is that it's meant to be as much for the living as for the dead. Mm, yeah. And at first, I yeah. I didn't really understand that. I thought, well, how that how can that be? And I thought it was some kind of esoteric funerary text that I would look into and see if it had any relation. And then more and more, I realized how much it really connects to connected to my life and to our everyday lives. And mm -hmm. so that wisdom lives on. It's, it's remarkable to me that, that, uh, how, how relevant it is. Yeah. Well, there's also been a, geez, how many great, great llamas have, uh, be, just entered into our lives in the West in a way that's been so profound for so many. I, I was fortunate myself to meet a number of them and to see His Holiness doesn't travel anymore, but uh, see him in the, in the West, in the States all the time. So there, there's, um, maybe we just get into the guts of it a little bit in terms of the mm -hmm, Tibetan Book mm -hmm. of the Dead um, and, and related to the structure of your book because... Uh, this is what you mentioned in that article. And uh, so let's talk about the first part, which is coming to see, gee whiz, we're dead. <laughs> when, the, it's, when the consciousness principle, this is from a quote from that you quote from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, when the consciousness principle getteth outside the body, it saith to itself, am I dead or am I not dead? The text explains, it cannot determine, it sees its relatives and connections as it had been used to seeing them before. The deceased might take up to four days to acknowledge her death. She may hover about calling to her relatives, why are you weeping? You want to talk about how, how you perceive that? That really blew me away when I first read it because I thought how, if there's one thing that we should be able to realize is that we're dead. <laughs> how, yeah, how can that, <laughs> right? it, it doesn't seem like a subtle thing. <laughs> or like you're like, okay, I'm dead. And I thought, gosh, you know, what, is, what does this mean? And so that, yes, the belief is that it takes up to four days for the deceased to realize this and that they're hovering and bumping around the altar room unless they're terrible, you know, very enlightened, in which case they've moved on. Um, but uh, for most of us, we'd be hovering around and going like, you know, over here, I'm over here. Why are you guys crying? Um, look, you know, everything's okay. Don't cry. And the lamas who are reading from the book of the dead, they sit in the altar room and they read to the deceased next to the body mm. are saying what you just said, what you just read that partly they're saying that they're saying you you have died. You have died and you need to, you need to accept that. 
And the deceased, was, then the reason the idea is it takes up to four days is they're like, oh, no, 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 I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> There's been a terrible mistake. Right? <laughs> and uh, that they can't understand. So at some point, they perhaps look in a mirror and they see there's no reflection or they look down at the ground and they see that where they've walked, there are no footsteps. And then this, for most of us, terrible reality starts to dawn on them that in fact they have died. And one of the reasons that this is so intriguing to me is so intriguing to me is that, as I said, it, the, it relates very much to the living as well. And so the idea is that the surviving relatives who are sitting in the altar room listening to the prayers as well can think about how this applies to their own lives, right? And so you can think, okay, so one bardo is death to rebirth, and we need to accept that we're dead in order to move on. And another bardo is birth to death, and what kinds, in what kinds of ways might we actually be dead and not admitting it mm-hmm. and not facing yeah. it? Right. And yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so one of my favorite, not favorite in a feel good way, but, you know, very, stri- <laughs> very striking examples of this is, um, for example, let's say your marriage, you know, let's say that your marriage is, is over, but a lot of people will cling on, you know, they'll cling to the, to the relationship, the relationship, even though it's dead, rather than saying this, this is over. And so in, and that's one of the things I talk about in my, in my book as well, is that, the um we cling on to something and here's the great paradox right we cling on to it even though there's nothing there yeah, yeah. which is uh boy we can pick stuff out like that on a day-to-day basis uh, the, <laughs> the clinging is extraordinary on on the most exactly. minute to the largest uh, issues right Okay, number right. two, we encounter frightening visions of deities and demons, projections from our subconscious that are like our dreams when we sleep. And this is an opportunity for us to recognize that these apparitions, our perceptions, have no independent in existence. Uh, and it says, whatever terrifying visions thou mayest see, the Tibetan Book of the Dead instructs, recognizing them to be thine own thought forms. And talk about what's necessary in the birth to death, never mind the Bordeaux's after death. If if one could recognize that in in our day-to-day lives, these are projections. Whatever it is, your story you're telling yourself and whatever you're projecting about people and uh, phenomena, so that's where these two things, you know, that is so self-evident and so powerful, huh? It is. It is. And this idea, because we we think, we assume that what we see is real. And Evans Wentz writes something quite striking and, and poetic in, in one of the, in the preface to, to the book where he says that he calls them airy nothings woven into dreams. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Airy I love nothings. That. <laughs> Everybody, just when you get that going, just go, airy nothings. Just like a dream. Yeah, yeah. it's just like a dream. And so, yeah. and and you know how, so when we sleep, when we sleep and our, our dreams can be so vivid and, and mm. feel so real, and it's like that, right? And yeah. so the things that we, we think are real, and in this case, if we're looking at, for example, a, a frightening vision of, of uh, using the the bardo idea from the book of the dead uh, from death to rebirth if if you run in if you see a frightening deity for example that it has no external tangible existence right it's just something it's a projection of a fear that you have right and and you're and it becomes embodied when you're when you're looking it becomes embodied because you think that it's real right and as soon as you realize it's not it just disappears and so the same thing the fears that we have as you say from birth to death yeah yeah and uh i mean it's again just so plain and simple that that's why we practice you know on on this podcast and on a lot of the others uh, that happen on be here now network there's always from teachers uh, a call to practice now while you still can. And that is exactly one of the major insights that uh, one can get to with practice. And it, it's the day-to-day that it helps with. And of course, going through 
the death part of. And the third part is about judgment and rebirth. This is interesting. We appear before Yama, the Lord of Death, <laughs> who holds a mirror, which is our memory. Good deeds are weighed against bad on Yama's scale, which is our conscious conscience. And the nature of our existence going forward is decided. If the scale weighs you're full of sin, your grandma used to say to you, right? In hot boiling oil, this she used to say, to the, oh my God, you're thrown <laughs> and, and your body is roasted with all the burns. You're finished. <laughs> oh God. Well, it's my not grandmother good. never said anything like that. <laughs> yeah, she was very matter of fact that she'd with her hands be like, with all the burns, you're finished. She's like that. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so, oh. so yes, this is very interesting. And this has to do, uh, I love this idea. Uh, and of course, it's, it's present in other um, traditions and religions and so on as well of judgment mm. and so this idea that we we come up and and the it's all again it's not it's not like yama is actually an external person or entity it's all inside us so it's our memory and our conscience it's our memory and our conscience so we're saying so let's say i remember when i i cheated a friend and and really caused a lot of suffering to that friend and then my conscience would make, well, then that this is the day of reckoning, right? Where you say, okay, I did this. Do I take responsibility for it? Do I, do I acknowledge that, you know, do, rather than being like, well, you know, it probably was all the ways we justify these things. So, and then if you are able to face yourself and say, at the end of the day, I lived well, I did the right thing overall, then the white stones are going to come out in your favor <laughs> and the idea. <laughs> and otherwise there's that burning oil waiting for you. <laughs> Brimstone. Ooh. Uh, but uh, now we have to say one of the, there, there is a reason why these llamas get together after one has died and sits with the deceased for actually, and they do prayers for what, 40 something days? I'm not sure. It varies. In my grandmother's case, I, I went to her funeral in, in Darjeeling and in her case, it was determined by the death horoscope. And so when, when someone oh. dies, traditionally there's a death horoscope that's cast and oh, it wow. says how long the prayer should go on for, what types of prayers they should be to remove obstacles and when the cremation should take place. And then the 49th day, there's another ceremony mm. 49, later. But that's the, it. Yeah, yeah. 49th day ceremony. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But the poa, the prayer, is recited regularly and everyone can recite it. And it, and it has, um, well, first of all, you're, you're bringing the Buddha into your third eye, and, and you are visualizing him, and then uh, you are asking, forgive me for anything I harmed anybody, and, uh, and there's a whole series of different um, prayers that one goes through that are recited so you can remember, um, and uh, we, instead of Buddha, in this particular case, because of our relationship with our guru, Neem Karoli Baba, um, you, you can bring in anybody who is free, basically. You, you want it to be a free being that is, had no longer been caught in any... gone beyond duality, basically. So there's a very great prescribed thing. Now, we knew in the West, of course, um, the Tibetan book of living and dying, Sogyal Rinpoche, which is a great book, no matter what happened to that Lama, which is a whole other thing. I think yeah. the book is great, instructive, easy to read for Westerners, and really translates some important things about how to, how to deal with, uh, with all of this. And uh, just so for your edification out there, I know this is a touchy subject, and I don't really know how to handle it because this Lama was accused of various uh, improprieties. And uh, But I do know that that book has helped so many people. Again, the Tibetan book of living and dying. And there, particularly, there are prayers in there that he translated into a little bit more common, uh, grounded, uh, Western way to understand and, and be able to say them. So that's just an, an aside on that one. 
It's very well, and and that book I agree is is been you know immensely um, helpful to to so many people and continues to be, regardless of as you say what what went on with Sol Gilbert Pache and I I think that one of the things it does as well is I think he says in that book that in a way you know dying is very simple you just breathe in and you breathe out and you don't breathe in again mm. and it. My grandmother also was very, very matter of fact about it. She was not afraid of dying. And she, for from her point of view, to be afraid of dying would have been, it's like being afraid that the sun is going to set or that the sun is going to rise or it's just part of the normal cycle of, or being afraid of being born or, you know, just the normal things that happen. And so it's more a question of, and again, I, I think it's very much relevant to our birth to death life, uh, journey or bardo, which is it's it's how we go through it. It's mm. how we go through it that we can that we can decide. And that's very much again what the Tibetan Book of the Dead about is about, which is that it's not like, I mean, hopefully we don't just hurdle through it like we're, you know, catapulted through space, but that we go through it consciously and intentionally with with what we've learned so that, that we can move forward in in the best way. Yeah. More fodder for practice <laughs> than reality. Right. Uh, That's, so, right. That's right. So here, here's something from, you can help shed some light here, Anne. Uh, and this is from the, so I think I mentioned this, yeah, the, this, the Evans Wentz that has the intro by uh, John Woodruff. And it was written a couple of years before the book was published, actually. And he makes some different comments. Uh, and there's a couple of things that really attracted me. I used to bring it up with uh, Ramdas in particular uh, because he was, uh, although he had studied forever in different Buddhist traditions, by the end of his life, he, he, he used to say, well, there's a way in which the clarity, the extraordinary clarity of Buddhist thought and vision of reality, basically, is so entrapping. He said, I have seen so many people get entrapped in their minds around this and forget their hearts. And that, that's what, So, of course, we used to have at every retreat in Maui all of our Buddhist friends, right, from Roshi Joan Halifax to Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salisbury, on and on, all of them. And whenever soul would come up, he'd look at them and go, sorry, we had to bring up the soul thing. <laughs> <laughs> and then I read in, in this version what that he got into some kind of getting at an understanding of what that thing is that incarnates. And it's, you know, as far as the Buddhists, it's not a self thing that does. And he called it soul complex, ever-changing, constantly changing as a human changes in, in life and evolves. That is what's very much part of what... Have you ever heard that term? I mean, I was so far out to hear what he called a soul complex. Did I have not me? heard it. Yeah, No, oh, it's really? very interesting to hear, but it, it certainly resonates. Um, he talks about The soul complex emerges from its experience of the void into a state like that of a dream. This continues until it attains a new fleshly body and thus really awakes to earth life again. So he was in the last stage of the bardo. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. and uh, I think there's more. Yeah, he just refers over and over. Uh, death disincarnates the soul complex as birth incarnates it. In other words, death is itself only an initiation into another form of life than that of which it is the ending. And the nature of the death consciousness determines the future state of the soul complex, existence being the continuous transformation of one's conscious state into another. That's basically what he's saying. I mean, I, I, I was so fascinated by this that, that uh, 
wow, it starts to speak to there can only be one thing going on and different traditions descri- describe it differently, right? So, uh, yeah, that just struck yeah. me. And it really, what, what you just uh, read really relates to our journey through life and how we, as we move, you know, in that one of the, the great ironies, I think, is that we really are afraid of death, most of us, and whether it's during life or whether it's actual death of our bodies. And, and yet it can, we can move into, as you were just reading, you know, it, if, we, if we accept it and move on, we can move into a really different and wonderful state of existence. Right. There's constant uh, change is not a bad thing. You know, and that's, it's not that's a bad thing. Yeah. yeah. And also it, it's, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. The universe doesn't care if we think it's good or bad. Yeah. You know, it's just, it just is, right? right. How about this? Yeah. So at the moment of death, the empiric consciousness or consciousness of objects is lost. There's what is popular, popularly called a swoon. Have you heard about the swoon? That's something else I've read. Oh, I've I've seen that in the Evans Wentz Tibetan Book of the Dead. It says Uh uh, that they're in a swoon for four days, Uh give or take, until they wake up and realize they're dead. He says, however, this is the corollary of super consciousness itself or the clear light of the void. For the swoon is in and of the consciousness as knower of objects. This empiric consciousness disappears, unveiling pure consciousness. I think this is the biggest thing about trying to describe what happens, which is ever ready to be discovered by those who have the will to seek and the power to find it. I have a hard time with the will to seek and power to find it. I, I, um, I'm going to depend more on Neem Karoli Baba in that moment, uh, my guru, and... Uh, but the, the reality, so they, they, here's the question after all of this, Anne, I'm so sorry. This is not easy stuff, okay? <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, it's not. Um, so there's a, there is always, as, as one goes along through these bardos, they seem to have an option to go in one direction or another, they talk of. Where does that, I mean, if it's true, and I have to, I mean, I'm a, I believe this, that, you know, empiric consciousness disappears. There's not this self-thinker that we're on the, uh, you know, in our lives day to day, you know. This is our, uh, you know, our movie of me, we call it. That's gone. So who's making, what is making choices, relative to consciousness and self-referential anything, which has to disappear. What's your thoughts? It's, it's, a good, it's a good question. And I don't know. I don't mm. know the answer to that in terms of the, the death to rebirth. I, there, there is an idea that, that some kind of essence, you know, is, is remaining and moving forward, uh, whether or not it's conscious. But also make, making um, choices of some sort. Exactly. Right. And so you That's can always real, make, which is yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Right. And so you're like, oh, you can, you can choose to face reality and admit that you've died or you can choose to take responsibility for this really bad thing you did during your life and uh, with your conscience and, and, and accept that and move on. So yeah, what is that you? I, I don't know. And the yeah. way that I, I think of it and, and, and uh, have thought of it in my writing as well as I think of it in my life is that we, we make those choices. You know, we make those choices as we go through life and that we, we are always, and this is one of the fascinating things to me about the idea of bardo and the bardo total and the, and the Tibetan Book of the Dead is that we create our experience in the bardo. And so it's not just some static thing that we go through, but that, and in, and in the same thing in our lives, right? So our lives is a bardo. So whatever you, Raghu, or I, am do right now, or tonight, or tomorrow, or next year, will then, of course, influence or determine what comes after that, and we make those choices. And so it's it's very uh, and and the, one of the things I really love too, and I mentioned it in the tricycle essay, is that I love how it's not. It could be really. It, it, I mean, obviously, it's a very harsh reality to accept, right? That, that one is dead, but 
it's there's so much compassion in in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you know, and it's it's the idea and and um, is for example when my grandmother died, the monks are there twenty four seven, twenty four hours a day. They're in the altar room next to her body reading to her from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And if one goes to take a break, then another one comes Mm -hmm. to take his place. And so the idea, and the idea there is that you are never alone. And I love that, right? And so it's like, Mm -hmm. this is really hard. This is really hard. It's like the hardest thing probably that we're ever going to have to face. But we got you. (laughs) It's kind of like that, you know, we got this, you know, Guru Rinpoche, now the monks, um, and it's this is really hard but we all go through it and here is encouragement and support and wisdom to help you go through in the best way yeah and yeah. Uh, and and if you don't have the opportunity to be in in a community of monks or with people teachers that really uh, know how to conduct these rituals you can get it on a simpler basis of and, and what you said it rings more true than anything you are not alone and and uh, one thing that one would hope in terms of family and so on and friends that uh, they the clinging isn't so extraordinary uh, that there's no way that there's a release and rather hey, this is a beautiful opportunity to move on the love i have for you is not going to change the love you have for me nothing will change we are we are in that envelope for eternity and we we've been doing this stuff together in different ways and incarnating so that that can happen without there being an you know a official ritualized uh, ceremony on a day i mean that's fantastic and and i've known people who have had that opportunity where uh, the local tibetan monastery will send over people really and uh, and 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 do that uh, with you, and with the yeah. family. Yeah. Yeah, and and one of the things that the Book of the Dead talks about is setting the deceased face to face with reality. That they use that terminology, setting face to face, and the it it always astonishes me how we incline towards denial. It's just, <laughs> and I I always think well. I have studied this for years. I've studied this book and I understand the idea, you know, and then it, that turning away from reality obviously doesn't make the reality go away. You know, it reminds me of, of um, in a way how my children used to play hide and seek, you know, when they were little and their idea of hiding was to go like this, like without standing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's all still there. Right. And we, but we, we tend to, to turn away from it. And it's one of the things that I wrote, as I say, I wrote about in my novel, as well as in my new memoir, which is that we, if, as we go through, let's say the birth to death bardo, as we go through that journey, and, and my memoir is about a journey I took to India with my mother, and I'm looking into my um, family history, my past growing up Tibetan American my relationship with my mother, and then this wisdom that is passed down through the generations from my great-grandfather, grandmother, my mother, me, my daughter. And that this idea of us as, as pilgrims, right, as pilgrims, you know, walking, walking this path as, as we go forward through life is very powerful. And we, where we can, as I say, not be in denial and say, this is, the truth or this is what's happening in this relationship or you know whatever it may be and then what and that's where what you said about choice comes in so what choices do we want to make around this and one of the things i i also wrote about in the essay that you mentioned is uh, the story about my great grandfather and he when he was coming down one day in 1912 from tibet to india back to darjeeling from lhasa and he had been working in Lhasa to um, set up a police force and uh, that the 13th Dalai Lama had asked him to set up. So he, he was coming back down and he got caught in an avalanche and the whole party, every, or most of the party was buried. And so he was buried and he was very devout, a very devout Buddhist and follower of Guru Rinpoche. So he was praying to him and he managed somehow to stick his hand up through the snow with his prayer beads. 
And the search party, the men who were above ground saw him and they mm. pulled him out. Amazing. And that story, one of the interesting things too, is that the Tibetan Book of the Dead is a terma, what's called a terma, which is a treasure teaching, as you know. And the idea is that Guru Rinpoche buried these treasure teachings uh, around Tibet and other places when he was establishing Buddhism in the 8th century. And it you can't just go dig them out with a shovel. It's not like, oh, here's one, you know, <laughs> you know get the shovel. <laughs> like, because they're buried in, in caves, they're buried in trees, they're buried in the sky, in dreams, which I love, and in the mind stream. Right. And the mind stream really speaks for me to this particular story with my great grandfather. And so this story came down to me through my grandmother of how he had survived. And he was the only one who survived of all the people who were buried. And that he was essentially bardo also refers to any time that your ordinary reality is suspended. So it could be illness. It could be an accident. And so he was in bardo entombed in the snow there. And he made a choice. This goes back to what we we're talking about with choice. So he could have said, he could have been in denial and said, nah, it's probably okay. You know, this probably isn't as bad as it looks. <laughs> or, you know, and you really have a very short time to live if you're buried in an avalanche. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, or he could have said, oh, you know, this is really not, this is bad. I wish this hadn't happened. You know, I wish I was, you know, riding down as usual to, to India. Um, and instead he, he accepted the really dire nature of, of his situation and then he made a choice, right? And took some action. And that to me really speaks to the lesson which is at the heart of the Book of the Dead. And the re one reason I find the Tibetan Book of the Dead so moving is that it's, it's about facing reality, but not giving up. Right? And so we don't say, oh yeah, this reality is really bad. I, there's nothing I can do. We're like this. And I, actually, I think this speaks to the pandemic as well, you know? And so that, that this whole bardo of COVID that we've been in, yeah. um, right. Where we can say like, this is really bad. Yeah. It's a really bad situation, but we're not going to give up. And how can we move through this in the most meaningful and authentic way? Yeah. And the way in which when we go through the death bardo that we fear happens and you turn away is it's just exactly an anomaly for going through day-to-day -day life and stuff comes up and we do a lot of turning away instead of turning to and surrendering and opening in and whatever word you want to use and that's to me the great lesson is that it is not just in fact, it's, again, starting to have that perspective now when you're, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. Start there. And uh, uh, we went to India when I was, uh, the bunch of us that went over at that time, we were in our early 20s and late teens. Mm -hmm. And we were fortunate, obviously. The karma was really uh, ripe for us. But uh, start there is, is what I say. S start turning towards rather than turning away and recognizing. I mean, that's a lot of what Tibetan Book of the Dead is, but it's recognizing what is rather than projecting and, and doing all the sorts of things that we do to not be here now, <laughs> basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I really agree with that wholeheartedly. And the um, interestingly, it always seemed hard and still does of course to me sometimes it seems hard to face reality you're like oh you know it's too hard it's too painful it's too much suffering i'm going to turn away but interestingly the times when i have faced it and when i do face it whatever it may be yeah. it's actually very freeing mm. and that was mm. a real yeah. revelation for me right you know what i mean because then then you're clearing out you're clearing yeah. out that construct from your mind yeah so you can see what is. Yeah. Um, yeah. We should. We, I know we're close to to the end here, but and, mm -hmm. but uh, well, I don't have any real time. But <laughs> the sponsor <laughs> says you have sixty minutes. But uh -huh. you talk about turning in one direction or another. We must mention this extraordinary event in your life of of getting ill with something that couldn't be diagnosed. 
it's a very I know it's a long story, but I, I think if, if tell us a little share a little bit, certainly around the way in which it, at some point there was a turning to and not a turning away. Initially, I know yes. there was a turning away. There really was. And what happened is I, I woke up one morning here in Tokyo very, very, very ill. I had uh, incredibly high fever, chills, nausea, h- headaches, on and so forth. I ended up being hospitalized and uh, for nine days they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And and I'll never forget the doctor came to see me one evening and I thought now we're finally going to get down to it because they had done like dengue, malaria, uh, all these different tests and nothing had come back positive. And so he he folded his arms and he leaned against the, the windowsill and he said, um, we have no idea what's wrong with you. <laughs> and I'll, we just stared at each other. I'll never forget. It was about 8.30 really? at night. And yeah, we just old, were looking at each other. How old were you then? Uh... I was in my 40s. Oh, you were in your 40s. I was in my 40s, uh, you know, mother of two children, university professor, writer. I had a whole life and suddenly I was just thrown off that, out of that life into this bardo basically. And then the uh, next day, suddenly they came rushing in and one of the blood tests that they had taken had shown that I had something called endocarditis. Mm-hmm. And endocarditis is a infection of your heart lining. And so, and apparently the bacteria had grown to such a degree in my heart valve that it had almost closed it off entirely. And they said they were amazed I was still alive and that I hadn't had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So I was put onto intravenous antibiotics. And, and if anybody would like to know the full story of this, there's an essay I wrote called Traveling in Bardo, which is online in Agni yes. magazine. And we'll have it in the show notes. So everybody can have you. all the yeah. links to, to <laughs> some of the blogs and so on. And I, so, uh, and I was terrified because I made a mistake of, it's very much academic writer kind of behavior, probably as I Googled <laughs> I googled endocarditis and it was terrifying you know it said yeah. all these terrible complications and like um and uh that you could be paralyzed and you could have heart failure and organ damage and then it said significant mortality and so it seemed like I was getting better and my husband and I were very hopeful and the um they call it vegetation in, in your heart valve had decreased quite a bit by uh, a couple of days after the antibiotics. And so we were thrilled and I was already in my mind packing up my room. We're going to go to Kyoto to like get over all this. And, you know, um, and the doctor was not at all happy. He was clearly really worried. And so we said, you know, what's wrong? And he said that what was likely is that in fact, some of the vegetation had broken off and was traveling through my bloodstream and could lodge somewhere else in my body and and create an embolism and basically kill me. So we, we just hoped for the best. And then the next morning when I woke up, uh, one of my fingers was numb. And so this, and they, you know, I had a CAT scan and so on. And what turned out is, as indeed he was right. And this had gone and it lodged in the uh, occipital lobe of my brain and was killing the surrounding tissue yeah. right, in my brain. And I, I'll never forget, they showed us the, the, on the, you know, the picture of this right on the screen of my, the, the, this black spot on my brain. And uh, I couldn't even look at it anymore. I just left in my wheelchair I wo- and left my husband to at, talk to the doctor. And when I got back to my room, um, my husband, who is a real hero, he had brought these papers and left them by the thing. It was like school papers. He's a teacher, a professor as well. And, and so I just kind of idly riffled through them. And in the back of that folder was my living will. Mm. And so I thought, gosh, you know, so he wasn't telling me, but obviously they had said, told him to bring it or, you know, and to, to make sure everything was in order. And so I thought, wow, I'm going to be one of those moms who dies in their 40s. Like this is, I've got these young kids. I've got a life, and I'm just like in, and it's that's it. I'm probably done. And when I was lying in my room, and I remember looking up at the white ceiling of the room, and I thought of this story of my great grandfather, buried in the snow, 
and how, um, and it, it deeply encouraged me because I thought, you know, because the reality, as you're saying, of course, I wanted to turn away from it. I'd be like, well, it's probably not that bad. The doctors will save me, um, you know, and um, it was actually that bad. It was really bad. And they had never even had a case like mine before right, at this hospital. Mm. And I remember thinking, you know, really wanting to push it away and just think about somehow getting back to the life that I'd had. And it really reminds me of what we talked about the first stage of, of Bardo after you die of coming to realize you're dead and where you long for your previous life. Like, oh, you know, I just, I want it back and you can't have it back. And I really wanted my life back. I wanted to just pack my stuff and go home and get back to my life. And it wasn't going to happen. So my great-grandfather's story really encouraged me. And that's what I mean too about Mindstream is that I feel like it came to me through our family's Mindstream. You know, I had heard it many years before, many years before and hadn't thought about it at all. And now it came to me about how he was, mm. he was uh, near death. Um, buried in in this in the snow, and I felt like I was in a similar kind of yeah. white tomb, and saved himself. And I thought, you know, so I could face this. I can say, yeah, this is really bad, and also, and and not give up hope. And the other thing I really realized from this experience was was about impermanence, and I I had written about it so much, and but it's very different from actually experiencing it. I found, <laughs> and. I had I had never entirely understood that because it seemed like, yes, of course, of course, admit that you're dead. Of course, move on. You know, it is what it is. But the reality of it, it was so much more difficult than I thought yeah. and so much more painful. Exactly. The attachment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And my to my children, to my husband, mm -hmm. to our life and mm -hmm. to my life. And so I really one of the things the Book of the Dead says is that we are pilgrims in search of a lost harmony. And I always thought that that meant we were searching for the harmony that we lost because we lost our previous life. And I understood it really differently after this experience in the hospital, which is that it was the harmony we lose when we forget that impermanence is the central truth of our existence. Mm -hmm. That's so and beautiful. Then, and it really, really, I really, that just broke over me like a wave, you know, that realization that, that I had been pushing that away and be like, no, no, no impermanence, right? But it is, it is the central truth of our existence. And as I said before, it was very, mm. it was very freeing to say like, this is, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. Yes, impermanence. And it's going to come to all of us. And, and I really, I really realized that. And so my, my great grandfather's story encouraged me and gave, it helped me not to lose hope and also to realize I might not live. I mean, he happened to live and there was no mm. certainty at all that I was going to make it, mm. yeah. but that I could, I could, what I could do is I could determine how I went through it. And that's what I, that's, that was the shit, that was the pivot or the shift that I was right. able to make. And I thought, yeah, because partly, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to fix this. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to live, but we can't do that. What we can say is, okay, here's how I'm going to travel through this part right. of. Right. Uh, what a great story. And thank God it all came out <laughs> so that you're here with us talking <laughs> right. about it. Right? Yeah, uh, I'm really grateful. Uh, that's so great, Anne. So, um, boy, we could go on, huh? We Especially could. The, this is just Tibetan the beginning. The, the, well, we'll have to do more podcasts. Uh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I look forward to it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, of course, everybody, we're going to put links into many of the, uh, of course, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Evans Wentz uh, version. I, and I don't even know if this is available anymore. It's from Wisdom Books India. I must have gotten it when I was in India a long time ago. Uh, but we'll end our uh, Anne's website and uh, as well as articles and so on. And, and we'll have to look for the memoir when it comes. And I just thank you so much for being here. Being here meaning Tokyo here and <laughs> in California. It's amazing, huh? And, Thank you, uh, Raghu. Yeah, it's been wonderful. 
Absolutely wonderful meeting yeah. you. Everybody, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And uh, if you don't know about it yet, we have Alan Watts now on the network. So enjoy, and we will talk to you next week. We will, you'll hear from us, that's for sure. Bye-bye.